0: Let's just pray as we come back to the Word and prepare ourselves. Once again, Father, we bow before the throne of Your grace. We recognize as we look at these characteristics, all of them put together are only a mere reflection of who and what our Savior is. And the life that He lived on this earth was the perfect, illustration and example of every one of these and so many more qualities and fathers we look at the shining examples that we have before us we recognize how far we fall short but it's good for us to know that it's good for us to see our weaknesses our faults our flaws our shortcomings as long as we don't dwell on them We don't beat ourselves over the head, we just realize, as the song we just sang. We're climbing a mountain, it's a long, hard climb, and we do grow weary, we often stumble. But Father, as long as we refuse to give up, we are going to gain higher ground. And so I pray in this last session, by your grace, that we will actually reach a mountaintop in our own experience as we lay hold of the truths before us. And we thank You and we praise You for all that You will do as Your Spirit ministers the Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Before we leave the topic of loyalty, I'd like you to turn with me to John chapter 3. Actually, it's not 3, it's long in your notes. It should be John 13. be a long stretch to go from John 3 to John 14. But I tried to end each one of these little vignettes, if you want to call it that. These little character studies with an example from the life of the Lord Jesus. And no one could show loyal love like he did. And you know what? I'm wrong. I was, it's hard to say, but I was wrong. Go back to John 3. No, I am right. John 13. We'll get there. I'm just having a mental brain fart. Oh, I wasn't supposed to say that. You know, I've, I've never, uh, a lot of times when you see a preacher, you can look at him and say, you know nothing about him. Nan and I often traveling. I'll say, you see that guy over there? Yeah, he's a preacher. That was one thing I never wanted anyone to say. They can call me a hit man. They can call me a cowboy. I didn't want them to look at me. And say right there's a preacher, because it usually means that something's being portrayed that is, you know, not really that. But so I am a little bit rough around the edges, and I try to uh, restrain myself. But here we are, and you get you get what you get, right? What, what, chapter, are we what chapter are we on? <laughs> I'm not even sure what book we're in. Gospel of John. We finally called it at John 13. I just want us to see a couple of connections here, and I'll cover this quickly in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. Get this, as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That was essentially the last command that Jesus gave the disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. Now watch what happens next. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Traditionally, we, we believe that uh, Peter was crucified Uh, In fact, he was crucified upside down at his own request because he said he was unworthy to die in the way that his Lord died. Peter's response in verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him and said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow, Till you have denied me three times. You know, Saul touched the holy thing of the sacrifice when he shouldn't have. Saul disobeyed the Lord when he was told to kill Agag. David committed adultery and murder. Could I suggest to you that no sin recorded in the Bible? is greater than the one Peter committed. By far, without comparison, without argument, the greatest sin recorded in the Bible is the sin of Peter when he not only denied the Lord, but he took an oath. He swore. Their swearing was not like our swearing. His swearing was, I swear by the throne of God. Something along that line. I do not know this man. And I point that out to you because there's a thinking among a lot of people that if you're really, truly, genuinely a Christian, there are certain things you can't do. And yet we have on record in Scripture Christians doing all those things. And how can that be? We need to understand that at the moment of regeneration, the sin nature is untouched. It is not rejuvenated. It is not improved. A new and improved sin nature (laughs) is what a lot of preachers would have us believe. The capabilities of your sin nature are everything they were before. Except there's a new element added. And that new element is when you have the light and turn back to the darkness, you will be even more evil in many ways than an unbeliever. Because you have greater understanding, greater capabilities. And so I always hate it when I hear pastors saying one of the reasons it bothered me so much as a young believer is I had trusted Christ, I had been assured of my salvation. The pastor that led me to Christ was very wise after I said a little prayer, which by the way, the prayer is not the salvation. The salvation happens before the prayer. Why do I say that? It's When a baby is born, many of you ladies can verify this, you husbands can if you were there when the child was born. How many of you have seen a child born that went... Well, you never did because they don't exhale. <clears throat> what do they do? <gasps> and there's life. And the next thing that comes out is <laughs> wah, right. <laughs> Salvation happens the same way. We take in the word, faith comes by hearing. hearing, and hearing from the word of God. You have to be hearing the right message, and we go <sighs> and we come alive and then we whew, thank God for our salvation. It's the expression of what's already happened. If I haven't already believed, that prayer's gonna do me no good at all. You understand? So, we come to life, we are born again, we are regenerate, the Spirit of God dwells within the newly created Spirit. Before we come to Christ, we are spiritually dead. At the new birth, God gives us a new spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within that newly created human spirit, and that's why John tells us, and again, this is so misunderstood and misinterpreted whatsoever is born of God does not sin cannot sin there is within every believer a place a part that is incapable of sin not only is it incapable of sin it can't be touched by sin and why is that important because it's there that the holy spirit dwells and the holy spirit cannot dwell in the presence of sin make sense If you go back in your mind to the tabernacle, you remember there was the outer court, and the outer court was open to everyone. That's your body. It's visible. It's touchable. It's observable. And there is where the altar of sacrifice was because you can't go deeper in until you come through the altar of sacrifice. And the priests, of course, would offer the sacrifice, go to the labor, wash, enter into the holy place. There's the lamp, that's illumination. There's the bread nourishment from the word of God. There is the altar of incense. That is our prayer response to the work of God, the Holy Spirit, with the word of God in our life. And then there's the veil. Behind the veil, in the Holy of Holies, is where the Holy Spirit dwells. So the outer court is your body. The inner court, which was accessible to few, outer court's accessible to all. Inner court, or the holy place, is accessible to few. You have a few in your life that you let into that inner court. Your trusted friends, your family, whatever. Only one could go behind the veil. And that was a high priest and that's because there the spirit of god the shekinah glory the glory of his presence dwelt that is your newly created human spirit paul tells us in second corinthians 5:17 therefore if any man is in christ he is what a new creature a new creation God has created something that never existed before. And that's where the Spirit of God dwells. And so we need to understand that that sin nature that we have That is a part of, according to Paul, our flesh, that outer court that is accessible to all, observable to all, that sin nature that dwells in the members of our body, the eye gate, the ear gate, the tongue gate, all of that, totally unchanged. But when we choose to sin, whether it's sins of the mind, sins of the tongue, or overt acts of sin, we're sinning against greater light. We're sinning against greater knowledge and understanding. We're sinning against greater power. And that's why it's possible for you and I as believers, and I'm not gonna ask for a raise of hands, how many of you committed the worst sins of your life after you became a believer? I can tell from the laughter that some of you are honest. The rest of you are playing poker. (laughs) Because that sin nature takes us to depths that we would never have thought of before. So, here's Peter. Peter was big. Peter was powerful. He was brash. He was bold. He was boastful. I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus knew what Peter was going to do. Did it change how Jesus saw Peter? And by the way, and it's in your notes, you can uh, look this up, but we're told in Matthew, I believe, that, sorry, Mark 14, 27 to 31, all of the disciples said the same thing. Peter said, I'll die for you. I'll never forsake you. Every single one of them made that same boast. They were just as guilty as Peter. I say to you, the rooster shall not crow until you have denied me three times. And we stop reading there because it's the end of the chapter and it breaks the flow of the context. Here's Jesus telling Peter that he's going to commit the worst sin of his life, and I believe the worst sin committed in the Bible. And what's the very next thing he said? And by the way, he didn't just say it to Peter, he said it to all of them let not your heart be troubled. If you were with Jesus today, sitting out there in the nice sunshine in the late afternoon in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and Jesus said, tomorrow you're going to commit the worst sin of your life. How do you think He'd treat you? He'd say, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Is it not astounding to you that he just told Peter what he was going to do and the very next thing he does is offer comfort, offer hope, offer promise? What do you think Peter felt like after he denied his Lord we've been talking about loyalty versus duplicity here is the most duplicitous act in history and as Jesus died on the cross and to the best of our knowledge John was the only one of the disciples that was at the foot of the cross and he goes back because Jesus if you notice as the story progresses Jesus began putting John and Peter together more and more as the cross approached and why did he do that? Because he knew Peter was going to need John. See, Peter and John didn't get along naturally. They were—John was a hothead, Peter was boastful. They—they they probably didn't uh, strike it off off the bat. Yes, they were fellow fishermen. They worked together, but how many of you just have worked together with the greatest people you ever worked with? No, you work with some of the biggest knotheads in the world. <laughs> and you have to tolerate them because you work together, right? And as John went back to that room that they were sharing, and he told Peter, they've crucified the Lord, and here's what he said on the cross, and he's committed Mary into my care, and he would have brought Mary with him, would he not? And then the pacing begins. The Lord is in the tomb and Peter begins pacing and he begins weeping and he begins wailing. You beat yourself up over things you've said and things you've done. Can you imagine as he walks the floor, as he can't sleep at night and it just over and over and over in his mind, the Lord told me in advance what I was going to do and I still did it. Do you think this part ever came into his mind? I don't believe it would have if there wasn't someone there to tell him. I see John pacing with Peter, hanging on to that big brawny shoulder. Peter, don't you remember? Don't you remember what he said next? What did he say? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe. Believe. Don't give in to agony. Don't give in to anxiety. Don't give in to self-recrimination. Don't give in to beating yourself up. Remember what he said: Was Jesus' love for Peter changed by Peter's betrayal? You want to talk about loyal love? And then later, well, previous to this, before the cross, as they're in the garden, Jesus asks Peter to pray, and what's he do? He sleeps. All of this is going to be going through his mind. He asked me to support him. I didn't support him. He told me I'd deny him. I denied him. What good am I? I can never lead again. Nobody will ever trust me again. And isn't it wonderful when Jesus met them up there in Galilee and they had the meal together and then Jesus confronted Peter with his duplicity. Because as Peter had denied three times that he knew him, Jesus asked three times, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. You know what Jesus, in essence, was doing? He was saying, winners make amends, victors make excuses. Uh, Sorry, victims make excuses. Amends is not just saying I'm sorry. It's not just apologizing. To make amends is to mend what's wrong. You get the point? and amend is a mending of a tear. It's a mending of something that has been broken. We fall, we get back up. We fall, we get back up. As Paul said, keep pressing on to the high calling that we have in Christ. So Jesus is the greatest illustration to us of the loyalty. You know, in the Bible, Matthew six twenty-three, Jesus said the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is single, that's what the King James says, your whole body will be full of light. The word for single is haplous. Haplus means a single focus, no distraction not double-minded. To be double-minded, James talks about being double-minded, the word literally is disukas, which means two-souled. But another word for double is diplus, haplus, single, diplus, double. Loyalty versus duplicity. We need to learn loyalty. We need to practice loyalty. And we need to live loyal lives. Let's go to study five: Abigail and Nabal, the wise versus the fool. Psalm 19. If you'll turn there with me, I'll try to get through this very quick. You've been patient today; I appreciate it very much. You deserve a afternoon and evening to relax. Psalm 19, verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, if your eye is single. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous, all to be together. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is born, and in keeping them there is great reward. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Wisdom versus foolishness. The whole book of Proverbs is written on the contrast between the wise man and the fool, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Let's go to First Samuel twenty five, and we will meet the fool. The fool is of course Nabal. First Samuel chapter twenty five. Again, not. Trying to read through the whole thing, but we learn a lot about Nabal right here at the beginning. Verse 25, then, or sorry, verse 1 of chapter 25. Then Samuel died. The Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, the name of his wife Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. We we'll learn several important facts about this man. Number one, he was a very rich man. Number two, his name reflected his character. It means fool. Some scholars believe that his name may have been something entirely different, and he's just called Nabal in the narrative because that's what he is. Uh, I'll leave that for them to argue over. His name basically means fool. His wife is very wise and beautiful. makes you wonder if it was an arranged marriage. I doubt that she would have chosen him. He had a wonderful heritage from the line of Caleb, but he was a harsh and evil man. In verses 4 to 13, and I'm just going to more or less tell the story instead of trying to read it all to you. When it was shearing time, it was very much, if you go back to the book of Ruth in Ruth chapter 3, you'll remember it was harvest time and Boaz and all the harvesters are at the harvest site all night long. Nan and I have seen in India the people harvesting grain the same way they did 3,000 years ago in the time of Ruth and Boaz. And they would have an ox that would walk around on the threshing floor to scatter the chaff from the grain. And then the women would come in with baskets and pick it up and they would throw it up in the air. I think there was one of those pictures maybe in... Uh, the video that we saw the wind of course Co- Co- carries the chaff away and the grain falls to the ground and then they sack it up and they have it at harvest time and at shearing time it was a party you remember after Boaz had drunk well scripture tells us he went and fell asleep on a pile of grain be a comfortable place to sleep because you know anything that's a little bit you you need a little hollow for your hip you just jiggle a couple of times and you've got it just conforms to your body right at those times not only was there a party it was a time of reward very similar to what we'll see at the bema seat of christ And at that time, the shepherds who had done well, the shepherds that could account for all the flock, the shepherds that never lost a lamb, they got a big bonus. And the ones that maybe lost a lamb, but they went and retrieved it so that they could show a lion, a bear took it, whatever, they would be rewarded a little bit less. And the ones that did a not so good job either got a very small reward or possibly the party was all the reward that they got. But it was a time of feasting. And we learn, if you'll read through this story, that the whole time that this guy's flocks were in this area, it was a time of war. There was war going on all the time. And David and his men had been like a wall of protection around this flock. The shepherds would not have done well. The sheep would not have done well had it not been for David and his men protecting them. So David, hearing that the shearing is going on, according to the custom, sends to Nabal and says, my men and I are are in distress and we need food. Will you share with us some of the extra? And of course, Nabal didn't like that idea at all. It tells us, uh, again, leading up to the 13th verse, Nabal answered, David, this is verse 10, David's servant said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my, take note, bread and water and meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I don't even know where they're from. Very, very scornful. When the word is carried back to David, David says to his men, every man strap on your sword because we're going to kill every male of this man's lineage. We are going to wipe his name from the face of the earth. Could a guy who was a believer act like that? Well, David did. David was a warrior. David had been hardened in combat He had been harassed. He had been hounded. He had been chased by Saul through the countryside. And he figured, all right, we'll just solve this. We'll just go kill everyone in his lineage. But verse 14 is what I want you to see. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. In other words, he spoke to them uh, like they were trash. I'll put it in modern vernacular. But the men were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them. When we were in the fields, they were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. In other words, the only reason that we can account for all the sheep is because David and his men were guarding us. Verse 17, Now therefore, no one consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household For he is such a scoundrel. This is the employee talking about the boss. He is such a scoundrel that one can't even speak to him. Nabal is held in contempt by the people that work for him. That is not a good reputation to have. Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of what was it that Nabal said, I'm not going to share my bread, and instead of water, two skins of wine. These would have been like big skins. That's a lot of wine. Five sheep already dressed. Why were they already dressed? They were for <laughs> cooking for the party. Five sias, of sias is basically a bushel. So five bushels of roasted grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, She loaded them on her donkeys and said to her servants, go on before me, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Ladies, (coughs) wives, be submissive to your husbands as unto the Lord. And how do we reconcile that with this? Submission to authority, including government only goes so far. Whether it's government (laughs) commanding you, pressuring you to commit crimes or do contrary to scripture, and I take exception to a lot of people's interpretation of Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Therefore, he who resists the powers resists the ordinance of God. And therefore, the judgment of God is going to be on him. But we know from our study of the book of Acts that there are things you don't obey. Peter and the apostles were commanded not to preach in the name of Christ. They had two answers. Whether it's right in our eyes to obey God or you, you be the judge. In other words, you can command whatever you want, but when it's contrary to Scripture, we're not going to obey. And we need to, as I said earlier, regain something of that spirit. There are things we don't do. Our government can demand whatever it wants. There are things we will not bow to. Ladies, if your husband asks you to do something contrary to Scripture, you're sinning if you obey him. It's the wrong thing to do. And therefore, Abigail acts as a wise woman. And by the way, she is commended by David and by the Lord because she does what's right. (laughs) We could go into all the scriptures that talk about the wealthy sharing with the poor, that talk about leaving part of the crop so that the poor are able to uh, harvest or glean from the crop, that if you're going through the harvest and the people come behind you, as Ruth and the other young women did, you let them glean, you even drop a little for them, give them a little bit extra. The Bible has so much to say about the duties of those who have to those who have not. By the way, it applies to you and I. But be wise. When you've got every store in town saying help wanted and you've got people standing on the street asking for money, I don't give them money. The only time I give money is when the Spirit of God says, help this one. And if the Spirit of God doesn't tell me, I don't do it. Because otherwise all I'm doing is aiding and abetting their laziness and probably their criminality. So Abigail goes loaded to David. She rode on the donkey. She went down under cover of the hill, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missing of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David." if I leave one male of all that belong to him the morning light. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey and fell on her face before David. Do you think she knew he was the rightful king? You better believe it. She fell on her face before David and she bowed down to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. How great a woman is this woman who realizes the evil that her husband has done and yet takes personal responsibility? That is a great lady. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel, Nabal. Now, she doesn't lie about him. By the way, you're not doing anything honorable if you have a friend, a boss, a relative that is an absolute scoundrel and you say, oh, he's a prince of a guy. Great guy no you're lying if someone's a thief what do you call him <coughs> call him a thief if someone's an adulterer what do you call him adult. it doesn't mean you have to hate him it doesn't mean you're trying to demean him you're simply expressing what their character has shown them to be please do not regard this scoundrel neighbor, for as his name is fool so is he You know, talk about living up to your name. Nabal is his name and folly is his game. Is that what your version says? A little bit different. Nabal's his name and folly is with him. Foolishness, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming, now she brings the Lord into it. The Lord has withheld you from coming to bloodshed. How? By her coming. And from avenging yourself with your own hand, let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. Shortly we find out that that was a curse. Now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. What did she do wrong? Nothing. She takes the blame of Nabal on herself. Basically, what she is saying is, if you want revenge on Nabal, take it on me. Is that an honorable woman? Is that a great woman? This lady was something amazing. Amazing. Verse 26, now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and avenging yourself, drop down to verse 7, this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men. Please forgive the trespass, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Again, do you think she knew he had been anointed? Because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you, King Saul, and to seek your life, but the life of my Lord is bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. Do you know what bound in the bundle means? It's the stone in the sling. Think about that. Did she know the story? Of course she knew the story. She knew he had been anointed. She knew he was the rightful king. She knew that God was going to make him an enduring house. She possibly knew, and I would suggest most likely knew, that he was in the lineage of the Messiah. To be bound in the bundle, what is it saying? You're a weapon in the hand of God. The stone that you slew Goliath with is as nothing compared to what God is about to do with you. Because he is going to use you to strike down his enemies and bring peace to Israel. And by the time you get to the end of the kingdom of David, he had fought enemies all around the little nation of Israel and defeated them all. And that's why Solomon was able to step into a time of peace and prosperity and focus his attention beside his 300 wives and 700 porcupines. He was able to focus his attention on building the temple how amazing verse 30 it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you ruler over Israel that this will not be a grief to you she's saving him from looking back in regret Nor an offensive heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that you have avenged yourself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then. How amazing is this? Twice this is said in the Bible. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Is that amazing? How amazing. David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed is your advice. Blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and avenging myself. For indeed as the Lord God of Israel lived who has kept me back from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to me to meet me. Surely by the morning light no males would be left to Nabal. Let me suggest the first thing she did that was so noble. She took the sin of her husband on herself. The second thing she did, she went and told him what she had done. She didn't try to hide it. Verse 36, Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning. Why not? He wouldn't even remember it, right? So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife told him these things that his heart died within him. He became like a stone. I suspect something like a stroke. Then it happened after about 10 days, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and kept his servant from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head and David sent and proposed to Abigail and he took her as his wife. By the way, it does mention that he also married Ahinoam of Jezreel. Now one of the things I love about the Bible is it just tells the story. It just tells the story. It doesn't whitewash It just tells what happened why would it be important for David to marry Abigail who lives in the far south and Ahinoam who lives in the far north and it won't be long until Michal who was the daughter of the king is brought back to him and he has friends from north to south why because they're related family relations that's the way they thought in those days that's why a king would marry the daughter they were doing it clear up until world war ii you know the royal family in france germany and england were all interrelated because the idea was this is politically savvy and of course these are only two of david's 30 wives so if you wondered Nabel's a fool, Abigail's wise. Let me ask you a question, are you wise? If you just said yes, you're a fool. <laughs> I'm serious, this is, this is objective thinking versus subjective thinking. If I think I'm wise, what do I have to achieve? Again, through the years, I've seen so many guys that were just convinced God gave me the gift of pastor teacher and I need to have a church and these people are wrong for not asking me to be their pastor and you know they go off they're constantly trying to work their way in and it never works. I've seen guys spend their entire life and it never worked. You know why? They're pursuing something that God never planned. They're trying to enter into something. If you want God to call you decide to run If he comes after you and grabs you and drags you into it, he wants you. If not, he doesn't. My desire through my whole ministry has been to hide. I don't even like people taking pictures. I don't even like, I especially don't like videos. Because my desire has been to hide. They can hear the voice, they can hear the class, and now it's all being ruined for me because Sharon's brother is putting me up on YouTube all the time. So <laughs> I guess my hiding days are over. But it will come back and bite me. The best thing to do, never promote yourself. Never do anything to, get, to become known, to become recognized. Try to hide You hide in the secret place of the Most High and when he's ready, if he wants to lift you up, he'll do it. Because it's a dangerous thing to be known in the world today. It's a dangerous thing to have your face recognized in the world today. Jesus Jesus personified the wisdom that's spoken of in Proverbs chapter 8. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is really a reflection of Proverbs 8, where the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and Jesus, as the Word, is presented as the one who creates and saves. I wish I had been able to point this out last night while Pastor Chris was here, because I like to encourage people in the ministry. You have no idea how discouraging it is. You have no idea how you can pour your heart and your soul and your breath out. And if you hear anything at all, oftentimes it's a complaint. Well, he should have said this. Well, I don't know why he didn't do that. And so I like to encourage. And Chris, the other night, was teaching on Romans 4.17 where Paul talks about the faith of Abraham and he says, in the presence of him whom he believed, Abraham believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls into being those things that do not exist. And he asked a question. Do you have to believe in the creation and the resurrection to be a true believer? And the answer is Yes. Because if you don't serve the God who created, and you don't serve the God who was raised, you're serving another God. The Mormons believe in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible, according to the Apostle Paul, is the one who called into being the things that did not exist And has power to give life to the dead. Resurrection power and creation power identify who Jesus really is. And so those things are extremely important for us to know and understand. Wisdom. Committing great truth to memory is admirable, but committing it to life is wisdom. There's a difference. We can memorize scripture, that's great if we don't implement it in our life, we're not really wise. The wise are those who have learned these truths that trouble is temporary, time is a tonic and tribulation is a test tube. If we can only understand those things, we're on the way to wisdom. The words of the wise, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12:11, are like goads. The words of scholars like well-driven nails. Isn't it interesting? Just, you know, this this is where meditation comes in. The words of the wise are like goads. Am I wise? I don't know. Are my words like goads? When I speak, does what I say prod people in the right direction? You know what a goad was? It was a sharpened stick or it had a Steel spike on the end of it, and when the ox is getting lazy at the end of the day and not moving, you just jab him in the backside, and all of a sudden (laughs) he finds new energy. You want him to turn to the right? Jab him a couple of times on his left side of his neck, he'll turn. The words of the wise are like goads, they move people in the right direction. A good test of wisdom. And the words of scholars, scholars here really refers to those who are wise in the scriptures, are like well-driven nails. Why is that? Because when you speak it and someone hears it, they can't get it out of their mind. A well-driven nail. What I have said last night and today, all of it, the whole volume of it, all of it is not for you. Everything that comes out is not for you. It's the one thing or the two things that the Spirit of God plants in your mind that you can't forget. When you walk away tonight or anytime, when you go to church on Sunday, as you walk away, instead of trying to remember everything, ask yourself this question. What did the pastor say that I can't forget? That was God's message to you. That was the Spirit of God speaking to you. Take that thing, remember it, think on it, dwell on it, and implement it in your life. And you'll be on target. And by the way, as the Lord convicts, I always like to say He puts His finger on that sensitive part of the soul by all means, please pay heed. You ignore that thing and you can accept everything else and be so far off that you are in grave peril. The best thing I can say to you is something that I don't know. Because it's the one thing the Spirit of God had to say to you. And if the Word of God is taught even by as poor a teacher as myself, and I mean that in all honesty, if you walk away and God's Word has been taught and there's nothing sticking with you, I would be afraid. I would tremble. I have listened to some horrible sermons. (laughs) I know Dan has too. You get a young preacher... He gets up there the first time. He's so eager to preach and so scared, shaking like a leaf, can't remember where he's going, kind of like me a while ago. (laughs) And it can be just painful to sit through. You know what I've learned? I better get something out of it. If he opens the Bible, if he reads a verse, if he expresses in any way what God has taught him, which is really all we do, all I'm doing is sharing with you what God taught me. That's that's what Bible teaching is all about. Because if I preach to you what I haven't received myself, it's not real to me. It may be real to you. God can still use it for you, but I missed out. what does Paul say? Think on these things. If you can consistently sit under the teaching of the Word of God and not walk away with a conviction, with a commitment, with a burning in your soul, don't blame the preacher. There's something wrong in your soul. You need to seriously get on your face, get on your knees before God, and say, God, whatever has hardened my heart, whatever has blinded my eyes, whatever is stopping my ears, deliver me from it. Make me sensitive again. Make me live again. When God created Adam, what did he do? That's what he's doing every time the word's taught. He's trying to breathe life into ourselves, And how do we receive it? This is grace. This is faith. Spiritual breathing. And as He exhales and we inhale the breath of God, we exhale in prayer, in conduct, in service, by putting into practice what we've learned. I hope we all walk away different people. I don't want to be the same by the end of tomorrow that I was when I walked in here. (coughs) A while back I said to someone, I'm in training. What are you in training for? Same thing I've always been in training for. I'm in training to be a better man. And I have a long way to go, but I ain't gonna quit. Don't you either. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you share with us, for the truth contained between the covers of this book, the Bible, the scripture, the word of God, for the fact that through the written word, we can draw near to the living word. That's when it becomes alive for the fact that you as our Heavenly Father, like the father of the prodigal son, are always looking down the path for us to draw near. While the author of Hebrews says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, in order that we might find mercy, find grace to help in time of need. And so Father, we have spent this time in your presence as your word has been conveyed And the Spirit of God takes that which is stumbling, staggering, broken, whatever. And somehow he turns it into eternal gold. And he drives it deep in our hearts and our minds. And that little seed goes to work to change who we are. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will all be better men and women as we leave this place that we might live out the truths that we have learned, that we might continue to aim high to that high calling that we have in Christ, to continue to press on whatever the obstacles, hindrances, difficulties of life may be. And I pray, Father, that that day that we finish our race and run into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will hear the words, Well done good and faithful servant. To this end, we commit ourselves in Jesus' precious name. Amen.